Hello and welcome to the menu on Monocle 24. I am Marcus Hippi. In the next 30 minutes, Nobumatsu is on what made him one of the most successful restaurateurs in the world and the highs and lows of his decades-long career. Nob concept is like a more like a family. So the baby was born, educated for the you know parents to teach into them, then they grow, then go to the next step. Then how good is coffee grown in a lab? The evaluators, the panelists, they were checking attributes according to coffee character. There we can do some statistics and what we see is it's pretty close. We'll also find out why Tibetan food is not better known around the world. And we get a dinner soundtrack recommendation. That is all ahead on this edition of The Menu here on Monocle 24. It's already been a quarter of a century since Nobu Matsuhisa opened his Nobu London restaurant. It was his first venture in Europe, and it is now the second oldest Nobu in the world. The anniversary brought Nobu himself to London last week, and I met him to discuss the ups and downs of his career, the role Robert De Niro has played in making him one of the best-known chefs in the world, and the business lessons he's learned along the way. Let's have a listen. Chef was my dreams. I was a kid. Then I started uh, training for the 18 years old and some the small restaurant in Japan, the Tokyo's. So then training this almost seven years. Then after seven years, like a customer asked me to come to Peru. So the, my first restaurant opened in Lima, Peru and almost three years. The business was good, but not the relationship with the partner because I was young too. Then moved to Argentina's. Then also not success, and uh, went to Alaska. But the Alaska restaurant, big success, but after 50 days, so less than the fire, then burned out. I lost everything, my, all my money and uh, all my passions, or, you know, I lost my mind too. Then moved to L.A., so started the sushi chefs, the small restaurants. After, again, six and a half years, opened my small restaurant in 1987 called Matsuhisa Beverly Hills. So after the Robert De Niro's uh, came to me to like open, let's try the New York. But first offered, you know, I said thank you, but uh, not time to the open the New York yet. But after four years, so he asked me again. Then I was surprised because he remembered, you know, I said first answer to say no, but he was waiting the four years. So that's why, you know, I appreciate for the invite again. Then we did it. So big success. And then New York success. Then the first Europe, you know, London's open. So since 1997. 25 years ago. Yeah, today's uh, like a 25 years anniversary at dinners. We do the big party tonight. When I listen to you talk about what's been going on over there, what's happened throughout your career, it sounds like people have been asking you to go to different places and these opportunities have just appeared. Someone invited you over to Peru and after that, a bit later when you were in LA, there was Robert De Niro all of a sudden over there and asked you twice to open a restaurant in New York. What do you think? Why do you think that was? Well, the first time I met him, I don't know what he's doing. And, uh, you know, because I was so crazy, the walking, busy as I was young. But I never think about this business grow. You know, like my first restaurant, the Matisse Beverly Hills, I was so happy to, even the 38-seat restaurants, I can cook to myself. Then I watch for the other people's, just to start the seven staff with me. I was so happy. But 
he invited me to come to open the New York. And I was something a little bit surprised to, because why do you, he invited me to opening? But he likes my food and、uh, he enjoyed my food. Then he gave me a big opportunity. Now, you know, the way back, so we used to never think about Nobu keep the growing to the restaurant, but he gave me the chance, you know, small chance. Then we match together. I try to, okay, let's do it. So then start business. Because before the come to LA, it's a big worst memory to myself. I was anchorage, so restaurant burned out. Almost I tried to kill myself. But after that, this happening, I like to go the one by one, step by step myself. So then Robert De Niro gave me the chance to put come to New York. you know. Then even open the New York, I stayed like up to one by one. you know.、Mm-hmm. Still, I walk in the one by one. Even the one millimeter go out the front, I'm very happy to be. I'm wondering when you mentioned that Robert De Niro seemed to enjoy your cooking, I was almost interrupting you to point out that actually there's millions of other people who very much enjoyed your cooking too. I wonder if your cooking philosophy or the way you think about food has changed over years. Well, it's my philosophy is like、um, now it's a lot of people's knows good qualities, and、uh, of course, it's more detail, you know. And always I'm looking for, like my mentors, I was studying for the training in Japan, always good qualities. And also, now it's like a United States, even come Europe, you know, people come to restaurants, not only eat food, enjoy time too. So it means this moment, like a customers come, I like to give it to the best quality food, best quality service. This is my philosophy for the restaurant business. What is your vision or what is your thinking? How do you guarantee that they have a good time in the restaurant? You mentioned that it's not only about food, it's also enjoying the time over there in the restaurant. What are the guiding principles? Well, if I am a customer to go to another restaurant, I'm looking for feel comfortable. Of course, it's like、uh, timing in the service of the food and also timing of the service. So, always I think about, I am chefs, but always I cook for、uh, thinking about the guest side. As you mentioned already, there's some reason for celebration now. Nobu London is celebrating its 25th anniversary. What kind of memories do you have from 25 years ago, from 1997 when you were launching、yeah. this place over here? Was London very different? And, and what did it feel like to launch your first outpost in Europe? Well, Nobu London is the first restaurant, Nobu restaurant in the Europe, in the London. Then I was LA to New York, came to the first time to London's opening to try to. A lot of people ask me, you know, I'm sorry about the people, but why the Nobu opened London? Because London's food is, you know, not so good,、uh-huh. you know, but 25 years ago. But、um, I came here, even me, so I feel like, like、uh, some of the sushi restaurants, only like、uh, three, four fish, you know, tuna, octopus, scallop, the shrimp, something like this, you know, not the too much varieties. So, Then customer asked, like,、uh, London is not a、uh, good quality about the food. But this 25 years, it's like a restaurant. I think that London is most popular. You know, people go to restaurant trying to do the good food, and customers know the quality too. And、uh, very, not surprised, but automatically, people have good food, cannot be bad food. So that's why. Looking for the always qualities more than more. You know, it's which one is more better. Many of people listening to this program actually work in the hospitality industry and may be taking their first steps in the business. I'm wondering what kind of business lessons have you learned, or do you think what are the main lessons you've learned 
in your career, something you would like to share with younger chefs or younger restaurateurs? It's very simple. Try my best. So do something, can see the answers, right? But this is not the final answers. When I do something, so something that come out, okay, about the next step, which one is more better? Always keep going. Exactly, and it's not always meant to be easy, as I've heard from you as well when you talk about your career. It's been, there's been some tough times over there as well. Well, this is uh, my experience, but uh, nobody has opened the restaurant band out, but I did it. But I learned from the, this experience too. Like uh, more uh, appreciations for because after that happening, a lot of people that supported me, and also like I have the family, it means like uh, love is most important, like the family, even the people love each other. Also, you know, appreciations, love, and the patience too. It's life is not easier, but uh, life has to be got one by one, not for the too quick. You know, this is the best way because each step learns something the experience. Nobu Matsuisa there and Nobu London has just turned 25 years. You are with the menu on Monocle 24. Then to Helsinki, as environmental concerns over food production grow, more and more people are looking to science for answers. Finland drinks more coffee per capita than any other country in the world, and the Finnish VTT Technical Research Centre has come up with a sustainable solution to service that need, namely coffee grown by cellular agriculture inside a lab. Monaco's Helsinki correspondent Petri Burtsov met up with VTT's Heiko Risha, who began by explaining the benefits of lab-grown coffee. My name is Heiko Rischer, so I work with VTT. I'm a research team leader heading the plant biotechnology research at VTT. The the lab-grown coffee, or cell coffee as we call it, is an alternative way to generate coffee. So as such, it of course collects a a number of benefits as uh, related to, let's say, the conventionally grown coffee. So I mean, as we all know, conventionally grown coffee has a lot of issues starts with a, let's say a shrinking area where you can actually grow coffee due to climate change and so on but there is of course also ethical issues with the land use and, and other issues let's say in the in the production countries overall let's say the, the coffee consumption is on the other hand growing globally so there are certain issues here prices are, are fluctuating extremely lately and uh, so then, of course, it's also produced far away from the actual consumer and, and consumers would like to have, let's say, the production more transparent and, and closer to themselves where they are consuming it. So, I mean, there are many, many issues. And let's say most of these issues are also tackled, let's say, by this technology. And, and there is some kind of potential to solve some of those issues. Due to the stringent Finnish regulation on foodstuffs, Risha was not able to offer me a taster of their lab-grown brew. But he did say that coffee professionals have been impressed with the results. Basically what we got with our brew was something that is pretty close to what we consider uh, good coffee. We had of course reference coffees in, in our sensory evaluation. 
And let's say the professionals, uh, the evaluators, the panelists in, in that exercise, they were checking how much attributes are according to coffee character. So, and then there we can do some statistics and what we see is it's pretty close. It's of course not exactly the same. And on the other hand, there are thousands of different coffee uh, brands and tastes and so on. And that's of course another issue to be explored. I mean, the diversity we want to have always in the coffee, that's part of the fun. Why we want to drink coffee is that there is diversity. So this is something we haven't looked into, but there seems to be. Okay, so that's interesting. So you can actually, once you have sort of the basic process ready, uh, you can then alter it and develop different flavor profiles also. Of course, that's the big idea. And then we have to keep in mind as a product, the, the coffee has to be pleasant. I mean, that's why people take it. So it's a coffee ceremony basically around it. So it's all about the flavor and the taste and the quality so these are important issues and the process as we have it 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 bears at least as many different parameters to affect on these features than let's say the conventional process and that's the very basis for the whole thing to be maybe successful at some time on the commercial level too the basic idea of utilizing plant cell cultures to make coffee was developed already in the 1970s but as risha tells me it has really picked up now due to environmental concerns As we see it, there is now a certain specific momentum in this whole area of, let's say, alternative food and especially in the, in the cellular agriculture, as we call it. So basically utilizing biotechnology and, and cell systems to produce uh, food ingredients or food items rather than, let's say, conventional agricultural practices. And of course, that has all to do with the current situation, with sustainability and so on. And that's why this is now very topical and and why it is picked up on a, on a large scale. So, I mean, everybody has heard about the lab-grown meat. This is a big issue in the news and so on. But then also, let's say, protein production with microbial systems. That's maybe the next big thing because it appears already on the market. There are commercial products coming out, milk proteins, for example, or stuff like that. And, of course, also plant cells are, are in this big frame, in this big concept, and that's where we are working with. So coffee is just one example, let's say, from the whole dimension, let's say. Where are you now in terms of making? Like, how far are you from making this product mainstream and, and what's standing in the way? Yeah, also a very good question because this is central and, and there are lots of expectations, let's say, from the public when they hear about this. One has to say this has been a, a proof of concept study, as said. So, I mean, we wanted to put all the pieces together in the whole process because it is a complex process. It is, of course, partly the, let's say, raw material generation. That's our core expertise where we are in this picture. So how to generate this material, which we can then use. But as I said, there is then a roasting stage, there is a processing stage, and then also, uh, in the end, the marketing and commercialization phase. So, I mean, we, we will not cover all those elements. As a research institute, we help usually our clients to work on these topics, and that's basically also where we are. So, I mean, this is now moving to the next uh, level, so that it's basically moving to the industrial partners who want to develop that. And in that case, we are fully relying, let's say, on visionary uh, parties who want to put this forward, because it still needs significant investment. Risha believes that lab-grown foods have reached a stage where they are set to become mainstream in the near future. We touched already on the lab-grown meat. So, I mean, if you look at uh, a couple years back, so uh, people were definitely not convinced that this would go anywhere and, and had to do, of course, with the high initial costs, which were 
kind of uh, put out there. What we have seen over the years now is that the costs have been coming down quite a lot. And that's, of course, uh, typical, let's say, for disruptive technologies. So in the beginning, you don't have a market and you don't have the capacities to produce. So it's actually extremely difficult to compete with conventional products which have optimized processes and everything. But having said that, there is definitely potential and the problems are not getting smaller, let's say, with the conventional food. Specifically, if we look at the coffee again, I mentioned the price development. So, I mean, we have always in the history seen huge differences and, and fluctuations, but at the moment the direction is only one way and it's going heavily up. has to do with maybe climate effects already. There were some bad harvests in, in Brazil, which is one of the main producer countries and things like that. So, I mean, this means also when the price for the conventional product goes up, so we are coming closer, even if we are more expensive than the competitive product. So maybe these margins are getting smaller and there could be a market, but as said, the economy of scales is the biggest thing. It's always there when we uh, talk about uh, biotechnology, but I think these are technical issues that can be solved. So these are now alternative processes and, and whether they will be successful also on the, on the commercial side that remains to be seen but at least they are existing and they offer some kind of alternatives for existing processes which we might not rely on forever. For Monocle in Helsinki, I'm Petri Burtsov. And you are with the menu on Monocle 24. Now, it would be easy to think that we have by now discovered what there is to different cuisines from all over the world. However, at least in the West, it's not often when you bump into a Tibetan restaurant or that you discover a cookbook dedicated to the food of Tibet. But one such book is out now. Taste Tibet, Family Recipes from the Himalayas is by Julie Kleeman and Yeshi Champa, who are based in Oxford in the UK. And that's where they also run their own Tibetan restaurant and festival food stall. I met them to discuss their book, Tibetan Food, and how they met in northern India. In Britain in particular, there's very few Tibetan people. So there are fewer than a thousand Tibetan people in all of the UK and the number is probably closer to about seven or eight hundred. So which means that Tibetan people here are very underrepresented. So if you go to other parts of Europe, that's less the case. I think there's a more kind of a bigger welcome for Tibetan people elsewhere, especially countries like Switzerland and Holland, Germany as well. And then obviously of those seven, eight hundred people here in the UK, only a few of them go into food. Yeah. How would you introduce Tibetan food to our listeners? What is it all about? Tibetan food is very, very unique and it's a very unique taste and it's very close to nature, to their rare freshness. See, I would say Tibetan food is really designed for keeping people warm at high altitude. So yeah. nomads at high altitude, in fact, don't have access to a wide range of ingredients because very few crops can grow at high elevation. So those people who herd animals out on the grasslands of the Tibetan plateau, they're usually eating quite a simple diet of barley, which is the only grain that can really thrive at high altitude. And then uh, yak produce, because again, yak is one of the few beasts with its kind of disproportionately larger lungs that can survive at high altitude. But at lower altitude, you've got much more choice. But generally speaking, the cuisine is defined by foods that are going to warm hands and bellies. So you've got quite a lot of noodle soups, you've got stews, often things cooked up in one pot because the Tibetan people usually use just one pot on the stove 
stoves are made of mud and brick, clay, and you can't really kind of, you know, have one thing going here and one thing going there. So a lot of one-pot dishes that warm and comfort. Do you see many similarities between Chinese food and Tibetan food or Nepalese food and Tibetan food? Traditional Tibetan food is not that similar, but yeah, some now is the food is changing. And yeah, from India and from China, a little bit changing now. But yeah, traditional Tibetan food is very, very different. I think historically they were always, there were trade routes that were open between Tibet and Nepal, India, China as well. And so there has always been a lot of um, exchange, for example, salt from Tibet for rice from India and new vegetables have always made their way in in that way. But I think that the pace of change today is faster than ever. So the cuisine is changing faster now probably than ever before. When it comes to food in Tibet, those ingredients, are there many ingredients you can only find locally or can you, for example, find everything from the UK you need? Uh, yes, definitely. Not necessarily you need to get the same ingredients. You can get different to change depending on the season that you can get. And obviously you can't come by yak meat here, yeah. but beef makes a great substitute. We wrote about this in the book. I mean, it's a very flexible cuisine. And although there may be some vegetables that are not available here or not so easily available, it's easy to swap other vegetables in for the ones that you might more traditionally use. I mean, generally, you don't struggle at all to come by the ingredients that no, you need. And no. We live in Oxford. It's not London. We don't have access to all the shops of, of London. But between the Chinese supermarkets and the Indian stores, generally speaking, everything is quite close at hand. You live in Oxford, but actually you didn't meet in Oxford. So obviously, yes, you are from Tibet. And Julie, you're very British. Um, do you want to tell the story how you how you met each other and how you ended up working together in the hospitality industry? So we met in, in India. So she went traveling to India and then studying in India, not India, on the Himalaya hill step. So, so yes, she left Tibet when he was about 19 or 20. And he'd been in India for about 10 years at the time that we met. And we literally met at the roadside. <laughs> so we were both taking photographs of the same monkeys, Himalayan langurs, they're called. They're big monkeys that usually live higher up. But in the winter months when it's too cold and, and those monkeys can't find what they need food-wise, mm-hmm. they come down. They're quite shy. But I didn't know that. Yes, she knew that. And he stepped in closer to take pictures. So I followed him. And eventually he came with me to the UK and he was just always a fabulous cook. And I think, you know, even before you moved to the UK, you had the idea of opening a restaurant or something like that. And I think that especially having moved to the UK, it became quite a burning desire to keep the name of your country out there when you were so far away. Yeah, so definitely. That's why I thought, you know, we just, and the food is a really, really big subject. And I can share the culture clearly. So that's why I thought I'd redo this food. And then it just one day we just resold out in in an hour. The <laughs> first day, yeah. Yeah, first day. And then just we continue, we did the food. Today. That's amazing. You've been definitely pioneers of Tibetan food in the UK, considering that, as you Julie said, about 800 Tibetan people live in this country. And now you have released this book. I understand that actually the original plan for this book was a bit different. You were meant to have a road trip. Mm, so I won an award back in 2019, the Yankitso Award for Food Writers on Asia. And the award was a grant towards travel in the region, towards hopefully, ultimately, making a cookbook happen. And we had a big trip planned for two to three months, visiting Yeshi's family, and we hope to do a lot of kind of on-the-ground food research. 
And that trip was planned for February 2020 with a transit in Wuhan. <laughs> <laughs> which at the time was the epicenter obviously of the pandemic and it didn't happen so but you know we as discuss have always been really driven to plant tibetan food on the the global culinary map and we decided to write the book anyway without the trip and we had more recipes than could fit in the book without doing that research on the ground and and these recipes reflect the food that Yeshi cooks at home and also the food that he cooks at the restaurant and our food store and it's a really beautiful book even though you didn't manage to actually go to Tibet this time round i'm wondering what were the principles the guiding principles which recipes to include and which ones to leave out I think that there were some recipes we just couldn't include because you can't come by yak cheese here for example but otherwise Yeshi has always been able to replicate the food of his home in our home in Oxford and so we were really just driven by the desire to share what we are able to cook and love to eat and it came very naturally to us in that respect What are your favorite recipes My favorite recipe is tentu which is a hand-pulled noodle soup and that's the first dish that Yeshi ever made for me when we met on that cold night up in mm-hmm. the Himalayas and for me that was and it continues to be really everything that I needed in that moment it was so kind of warming and and the experience as a whole was so kind of It was almost miraculous to me he produced something so delicious from such a very simple kitchen setup barely a kitchen <laughs> <laughs> which actually says so much about Tibetan food as a whole i mean amazing things can be created using very little and whatever you have to hand yes yeah, so what's your favorite recipe uh my favorite recipe i think it's chicken curry as well now it's chicken curry is my favorite and also my customers Favorite as well, so I prefer the yeah, I go for the meat for chicken curry. I think <laughs> the taste of that famous chicken curry, <laughs> we called it at the restaurant and in the book. Amazing. What does the future of Tibetan food look like at the moment? What do you think? I think you mentioned earlier that there's been increasing influence from say Nepal or from China. At the same time, the world is, I guess, discovering it increasingly. So, what does the future look like? It's a really interesting question. I think that if you're outside of Tibet, most of the Tibetan restaurants you'll visit are owned by people who like Yeshi have made a long journey out of Tibet, usually via India and Nepal, and the dishes on their menus reflect the journey that they've taken. But inside Tibet, you know, while there is a lot more produce available now, even at high elevation people have greenhouses now and are able to grow vegetables that they've never been able to enjoy before. There is also a resurgence of interest in the kind of native foods. Samba is roasted barley flour. And we mentioned that Tibetan nomads at high altitude, some of them eat samba three times a day. And I think at a time where the choice is becoming at times dizzying inside Tibet, a lot of people are returning to this food that they know to be safe and they know to be the right food for them. You know, understanding that eating what is locally available is usually what is best for our health. And I think it's also fascinating what I read from the book that it's really important for Tibetan food culture that everything is quite fresh and comes from the nature. I'm wondering, Yeshi, what did you think about the British food culture when you first came here? <laughs> yeah, first of all, when I was in India, Julie told me, you know, the chicken's the same size, kind of that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I quite first I was just quite shocked, but <laughs> we need to go back a little bit to the natural, you know. We need to understand where the food come from, 
but then also if we eat meat, where the meat is come from and the kind of the vegetarian as well. Mm. And it's so important how food is come from and we need to eat more、uh, consciously. Yeah,、mm. and then, then local as possible. And we buy local shop as possible. And that's also unnoticed that we with a small business as well. If we buy a local shop, their local shop employ more people than in supermarket. And then the money is stayed local, and then the local business more stable、mm-hmm. in the future, long terms. So I always do. So I buy stuff local as possible. It looks like at least that the food culture is going to the right direction over here. People are more interested in where the ingredients and where the food comes from. Just finally, before I let you go, I'm wondering what's happening in Oxford now with your business over there. Are、oh, the book is out? What kind of plans do you have for the future? Well, we opened our restaurant during the second lockdown in November 2020. And obviously, we've only gone from strength to strength since then, really. And now, with the book, we feel like we've really built a community around us in East Oxford that have really bought into the idea of Tibetan food. And we know that from how much interest there's been in the book, and from customers who want to now cook the food at home, which to us is just everything. Because when we we started Taste Tibet, the food stall, and then the restaurant, the aim really was always to. Generate more conversation around how we eat using the Tibetan model as a kind of example, and the restaurant. We can only do that kind of so far, you know. Now with the book, we hope that that will have longer legs than the restaurant does, and we're really excited to see more people cooking and enjoying Tibetan food. Julie Kleeman and Yeshi Jumpa there. They are the authors of the new cookbook Taste Tibet, which is also the name of their restaurant in Oxford. And that's all for this edition of the menu. Remember that we are back with a new episode again on Friday at twenty hundred London time. That's at midday if you are listening in Los Angeles. Meanwhile, do check out our menu spin-off show, Food Neighborhoods, for great recipes. This show was edited and mixed by David Stevens, and I am Marcus Hippie. Once again, we finish this program with a dinner soundtrack recommendation. Here are Soft Cell and Pet Shop Boys with Purple Zone. Thanks for listening.